This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thin Place, the film geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Ken Morfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. This is episode number one, so put cardboard behind it, wrap it in plastic, and keep the cover in mint condition for September 2011. And our topic for today's episode is Harry Potter and the Afterlife. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion, so please, if you have not yet seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, this would be a really good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So let me start by asking you, when we were discussing topics for an inaugural podcast episode, you had mentioned Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, affectionately known as Harry Potter 7B. And I said I was okay with that as long as it wasn't a general discussion of whether or not it's okay for Christians to watch Harry Potter because I think that ship has already sailed. And we finally settled on looking at what Harry Potter has to say about the afterlife because you had noticed a couple scenes in the film that you thought were really interesting in terms of disseminating ideas that the culture or the author had about what happens after we die. I was wondering if maybe you could summarize one or two of those scenes that caught your attention or made you want to talk about that subject, particularly in reference to Harry Potter. Well, sure. And, you know, the, the first thing that came into my head when we were discussing topics was the Harry Potter films, and, and really not because, as you alluded to, there's controversy in Christendom um, about its appropriateness, but rather, here we have this film, or series of films, following on the footsteps of this series of books that has, I think by any measure, been a worldwide phenomenon, hugely popular um, across the globe, and whenever I see something like that that is so widely accepted, it seems to me that there's something about it that is tapping into a large portion of the pop- of the population that you know it, it's speaking to people, and and whether it is reflecting values that are widely held or it is offering something that lots of people are seeking. It seems to me that there is something worth exploring there. But also there is this question, especially in this final movie, of death, what does it mean, and what happens afterwards. And and there is this vital scene in the film where Harry is seemingly stricken dead by Voldemort. And he appears in this white place that looks like a cleaned-up King's Cross, Station. And they and the point of, of saying, like King's Cross, only cleaner. Only cleaner. So that, you know, if nothing else, we can say that the, the movie's per- portraying 
the afterlife is someplace that's somewhat idealized, shall we say. But it, there is this question, what happens there? The, the action and the, the events that take place in King's Cross Station in Harry, Harry's afterlife experience really raise some interesting questions. Uh, well, and, about, and I'll stop you right there if I, if I can yeah, and just put in sure. one. Because, um, you know, I watched the film after you did and was paying particular attention to that scene. And and I, I suppose we should clarify that we're already calling it an afterlife experience, but we're not even really sure what it is. Harry asks Dumbledore, is this real or is this all just in my head? And Dumbledore says, you know, gives some sort of cryptic answer about, well, of course it's real, but maybe it's all just in your head or uh, if it's all just in your head, does that mean it's not real? Um, so there, the, the movie does kind of hedge its bets in terms of we don't want to definitively say that it's an afterlife experience. It, I guess it could be possible that it's his projection of an inner mind or an inner afterlife experience, but I just kind of want to put that caveat in there. No, I think that, that's a fair point. Um, the The experience, it certainly is not heaven or hell in the way that most Christians would define it. it. It seems to be this sort of waiting place because you know, Harry's the only one there besides Dumbledore. And that that does kind of beg the question of what is this place? Well, there's also, I mean, Harry and Dumbledore are there, but there's also this sort of shrinken, almost corpse-like or bloody mass that it looks like a shrunken kind of enfeebled version of Voldemort's body. So that's I mean, true. That's there. true. Um, but there's this, this other thing there, um, which again raises all sorts of questions about whether or not it's an afterlife or a way station to an afterlife or a projection of inside of, of Harry inside of Harry's uh, head. And I think our difficulty in defining what this is kind of really gets us into that whole question of what is this film of this book saying about what does happen in that that space after we die. Um, and maybe the confusion here perhaps is telling. I think so. I mean, one of the things that sort of, as I've been thinking about this topic, that makes me, you know, that gives me pause, is not just that there's ambiguity within this one scene, but there are other representations of people who have died in the physical world throughout the film and throughout the books. And there, I'm not sure that there's a, a consistency or a clear understanding in my mind as a reader or a viewer of, does this happen to everyone when they die, or does it just happen to Harry? Why is it that some people come back as ghosts or spectral apparitions? You know, before we have this scene, before Harry dies or, you know, is wounded, uh, he meets with his parents in the forest or the, the spirit of his parents. We've got the ghosts that wander around Hogwarts, you know, the founders of the house. Harry speaks with the, the ghost of Ravenwood in order to find the, this crown that he is looking for. And I'm never quite sure why 
some people turn into ghosts and other people don't. Some people go to the way station or are at the way station and, and other people don't. Uh, I guess maybe that, that pushes me in the direction of saying this is Harry's head or unconscious way of processing what's happening to him, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and I, I think you're, you know, you're bringing up some really interesting points. We also have, in other points in the book, you know, Harry interacts with his, at least with the spirit or the apparition of his parents more than once. Yes. And it's, and it, it and you're right there, it never is quite clear what the rules are. And I, I believe it's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. You know, these apparitions come out of his, out of Voldemort's wand when they're in a battle. And that, we say, okay, at least the rule that's stated at that point is that the, the one, the last people that the wand has killed appear in this certain special circumstance. But in the very first Harry Potter book, he is looking at this mirror and he sees his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Dumbledore, speak, can they? I don't think they can speak. The idea there is that he is being shown his heart's desire. Right. Okay. But even at that point, and in the very first book of this series, there is this interesting nebulous ambiguousness about the relationship between the living and the dead, because we we also are introduced in the very first book to to the ghosts that do roam around Hogwarts Castle, and you know each house seems to have its own ghost, and we, yeah, why are they ghosts and not other people? Right. Well, and, so that's and I, I I like the way that you put it as far as we're never quite clear on the rules, and I would extend that not even to the rules of what happens to you when you die, but the rules of exactly why, you know, when Harry has the scene in the the white scene in the way station, he asks Dumbledore if he's going to go on or go back, and Dumbledore says, well, it's your choice. Uh, and then in the real world, Neville gives a rousing speech and Harry's dead body jumps jumps out of Voldemort's or Hagrid's arms and oops, he's not dead, he's alive again. And and I'm not quite sure from that context, you know, was he in a coma and everyone thought that he was dead? Was he actually dead and resurrected? But but what are the rules that why is it that he is allowed to make that choice? And is everyone allowed to make that choice and everyone just chose not to come back? Or is there something about the way that he died that means that he can come back? Is he allowed to make that choice because he's Harry Potter? Um, that there uh, seems to me to be not just a lot of confusion or vagueness about what happens to different people when they die, but also whether death is is, is final. Yeah, I think especially in this film, that that, that question is very unclear because ostensibly we could say, okay, Harry is given this choice because he has made this choice to sacrifice himself. You know, he has willingly given himself up as a sacrifice to save his friends, and therefore he's given some special consideration. But yet, in in the way that this film is set up particularly, just about every one of, at least every one of the people that are on the good side are willingly making a sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, they, they know, I mean, even all, you know, his various various friends of his that die have 
willingly chosen to put themselves in a dangerous situation for good. So do they not have a choice as well? And if not, why not? I think one of the reasons why, for me, I maybe harp on that ambiguity or that inconsistency a little bit is that I really want to specify for me, and I suspect for you too, uh, that the reason that bothers me is in support of an aesthetic or an artistic judgment about the series, not necessarily a moral judgment. I want to be clear that I'm not saying, oh, okay, I, I think Harry Potter as a series is inferior to some other series because its vision of heaven doesn't conform to my Christian notions of heaven. Uh, really what I'm saying is that it doesn't, artistically and effectively communicate what its vision of the afterlife is, you know, that I, I'm in that earth slow again notion of science fiction or fantasy of it's okay to posit an alternate reality, but once you've posited that alternate reality, you've got to be consistent to it, you know, or consistent right. with it. You can't say, you know, you can't say in one scene, oh, you know, when you die, you become a ghost and you're on wander the castle. Um, the last person, you know, if you're killed by a wand, then you can come out of that wand. No, you can appear to, you, you know, whoever is your heart's desire. Um, one of the comparisons that I make is to uh, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where people say, okay, he changes the roles. You know, Aslan's dead, and now he's alive. But at least even in that, Lewis knows that I have to offer up some sort of explanation. I can't just... I can't just say, oh, you're back there, and Aslan gives some explanation about, well, there's a deeper magic that the witch didn't know, that if you willingly, if an innocent person willingly sacrifices himself, then, then death doesn't hold. But at least he recognizes that that's an inconsistency that needs to be addressed, whereas I don't know if it's because the book, the films are so truncated from the book, um, and that they're addressed more fully in the books, which I've read but a while ago, and I don't remember all of the, you know, the particular details. Whether some of those objections are fleshed out and they just get lost in the translation, or whether even within the book there's this kind of mishmash of whatever happens, happens, whatever I need to happen to advance the plot at this particular day, I'm more concerned about that in a George Lucas sense than I am about whether that's consistent with what I've said in the other six movies. No, I think that's a, that's a good point to raise. Um... The, uh, yeah, I think the idea I'm concerned with as well sounds like is just this idea of is there a consistency within this fictional world? And yeah, I've I, I think I've read the series more recently than you have, and, and I'm still kind of at a loss. I mean, there has always been from the very beginning of the series some sense that Harry had been offered some special protection because of his mother's sacrifice, but how that translates to the specific instance of Harry's choices at the end, toward the end of this film, it, to me, it's not clear. And, and, and I think there is some question as to what do the rules apply or have things changed somehow? And, and thinking about this, you know, I made the point earlier about there's, there's something about these books in these films that obviously reaches a very wide and global audience. Yeah, I almost wonder if perhaps some of that mushiness about the details doesn't, in, perhaps in some ways, reflect a larger kind of 
ambiguity, you know, culturally speaking, about how this works out? Well, I, I think it does. That's probably a good segue into our my literary theological aids, although I, I, I want to sit aid. I, I want to signal that we're probably shifting from more of a artistic examination or a formal examination of Harry Potter into more of a thematic one that really stressing the importance of this as a cultural artifact that reflects the attitudes of the age and disseminates ideas to the people who are, you know, consumers. And and I think one of the the ways in which it reflects the culture that created it, not just the author that created it, is, uh, you know, it's sort of widespread. Uh, I'm going to be parroting here an argument from uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, who is one of the world's most well-known biblical scholars and is the Bishop of Durham for the Church of England. But not too long ago, I had read his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. And he makes the argument that the contemporary world as a whole is very confused about what happens when we die and hasn't, in his mind, gotten a whole lot of help more recently from the Church because a lot of Christians are confused about what happens when they they die uh, in terms of... um, uh, Right, as as sort of evidence of this kind of confusion or vague notions of of what happens, offers up in one of his early chapters um, a book written by Maria Shriver called What's Heaven? It's a children's book that I guess Maria Shriver wrote to help kids understand what happened when he died. And this is this is right quoting a passage from Maria Shriver's book. Heaven, says Shriver, is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on a, on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest any of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to you to take you up to heaven to be with him. And grandma is alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She is watching over us from up there. I want you to know, says the heroine to her great-grandma, that even though you are no longer here, your spirit will always be alive in me. One of the fascinating things that I thought about that passage when I read it is what a strange, almost self-contradictory notion of heaven that is. There's very strongly that Western Judeo-Christian notion of the afterlife being a winnowing place. If you're good, you go one place. If you're bad, you go someplace else. But then even by the end, she shifted gears to even though I'm no longer here, my spirit is alive within you. I'm in a safe place, and uh, you, your sort of your memory and your actions keeps my my spirit alive. And, and I, I think that in in some ways, if you compare the Shriver book, you know, or the Shriver notion to heaven, to the Harry Potter notion of heaven. I I think what you see is that I don't think that it's necessarily, well, I wanted to say fair, to judge 
Rowling or if it's uh, the Harry Potter series is sort of saying, oh, okay, this is this is somehow awful or bad because it's got such a convoluted notion of heaven that will you know, confuse our young children if they watch it. I think really what we're seeing is that it is a it is a reflection of a larger confusion that people have. I keep using that word confusion, which might imply that uh, you've gotten off on the wrong track, but I, I mean it in a more generic, value-neutral sense of most people just kind of are like, I don't know, or have a mismatch of beliefs. And I, and I think that the work is... I, I keep going back to that word confused rather than heretical or wrong. I think one of the most fascinating or illuminating things about looking at Harry Potter as a cultural lens is that it, it really illustrates that, that sort of widespread holding of contradictory or vague beliefs that most people have about the afterlife. Um, what do you think about that? I think one of the, one of the as you were reading that that description from the Schreiber book, the, the quote from the, the Schreiber book, at least I think in one in one sense, I almost think that the Rowling presentation. I don't even know if we can call it the Rowling presentation. The movie presentation of the Rowling idea, um, in in some ways, is almost more clear because. And, and this goes back and, and to that that sort of bloody, shriveled representation of Voldemort. Um, you know, this, this idea of the Horcrux um, in the Harry Potter universe that it is a, a splitting of the soul, and the last little bit was in Harry, and so, okay, here we are in this way station, you know, this train station, and there is on the ground this what ostensibly is the last piece of, of Voldemort's soul, and, and at least that idea of of the afterlife being a winnowing place, as you as you put it, that's somewhat more clear in, in the Harry Potter film. I mean, Dumbledore, you know, because Harry asks, well, what is that thing? Um, and, and Dumbledore really says, well, there's this is what it is, and there's nothing we can do for it. Right. You know, it, he, he almost it, says something like, oh, you dear boy, you know, I know you want to help, but you can't, you, you know. But you can't, yeah. Dumbledore, I mean, uh, Voldemort has made his choices, and that's done, and, and it has no place here. I, I, I would say, I, I would agree with you that I think that the, the sort of one remnant that persists in contemporary culture from that Judeo-Christian tradition is that... You know, we don't necessarily know what it is, but th- but that remnant of judgment, that there is some sort of moral judgment, don't know who or what is making that judgment, whether it's just, you know, the moral nature or fabric of the universe, but that there's some kind of judgment or accounting for your life on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. That's part of what bothers me about the postscript scene, where we're all on the train, and Draco Malfoy is there, and okay, there's this sense of all is forgiven. It's not as though he repents of his choices or changes his way. It's, it's almost as though his choices are forgiven him. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure, like, okay, why is there nothing that can be done for Voldemort? Uh, it's not, you know, I kept waiting for almost Gollum-like, you know, the the notion that with Draco there would be the, well, we gave him every opportunity, we have to save him so that he has every opportunity uh, until the point where he can't make any choices anymore. But it's like, 
until the very end of where Voldemort is defeated, he consistently chooses, perhaps under coercion, but consistently chooses to go against that. But there doesn't seem to be any moral accounting for Draco, I guess is what I'm saying. I, mean, I think so, that's, a, that's a fair... That's a, that's a that's a good observation. I, I almost wonder if I you know again thinking of the Harry Potter films slash books as a mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I I think we see this in our own culture where yes, we do have this idea that there is good, there is evil, evil must be punished, and we have no problem thinking about people getting punished, you know, the ultimate evil people getting punished. Mm-hmm. The Hitlers, the Osama Bin Ladens. We, you know, we don't have any as real problem. Yeah, as a concept, right. we're okay with that. But, yeah. but when it comes to people closer to us, when it comes to younger people, you know, I, I think there in our culture, there is much more of a sense of Either, in the case of Draco, yeah, he was being coerced. And so, mm-hmm. because he was being coerced, somehow that gives him a pass. Mm-hmm. Whereas Voldemort was very much, you know, even though he had a troubled childhood, he was very much acting on his own and totally evilly. And, um, and you know what I wanted more of from the franchise, or at least from this movie is, I'm back to the the rules, I wanted some sort of articulation of that. I I mean, I would have been okay with that if someone had said, this is the reason why he is here, as opposed to, you know, example or the parallel with C.S. Lewis, there's a famous scene in The Last Battle, where they're in their afterlife state, and the followers of Aslan see a follower of Tash, and they say, why is he here? And Aslan explains, okay, well, he thought he was worshipping past, but he was really worshipping me. He gives the articulation of the reason, whereas I, I feel more often than not in Harry Potter, it's just sort of like, okay, this is brought to you as a mystery for you to contemplate, but you have to figure it out, because I, Rowling, or I, the director, don't really know why. You know, I, I, I don't feel comfortable enough making it definitive answer as to why some people are punished and some people aren't. So really what I'm going to communicate as a mirror is my own uncertainty as to why that, you know, happens. And the best that I can do is show you that it does, but not articulate to you a, a sort of fully formed vision that that will articulate or satisfy you as to, that, that won't seem to totally and completely arbitrary. And I, I think, you know, thinking about this I did, you, you use the word mystery, and, and and I think here is perhaps one of the keys of what we might think of, and, I, and I'm I'm going to make some kind of a judgment. I don't know if this is an aesthetic judgment or a moral judgment, but there, there is there is a difference here between a work that is offering up a mystery because the person doesn't know what they're what they think, yes. doesn't know their own mind. As opposed to something that is saying, here is a mystery, and I'm going, you know, I have, I have found this mystery, and, you know, we should contemplate this mystery. And, and I think some of the better spiritual films do that, of saying, here is a mystery. It's not because I don't know what I think, it's because it is a mystery. And, and I wonder if perhaps that's one of the things that's bothering you, is that this film seems to be more of the... I don't know what my own ideas are, 
So I'm just going to throw this out there. Rather than saying, looking at life and saying, here is a mystery. Mystery becomes one of those words that can become a spiritual or emotional deus ex machina. And the cynic in me, just like the cynic in Aristotle says, okay, are you relying on that simply because you've written yourself into a corner and don't know how to, you know, <laughs> answer your own question? Or are you, you know, are you presenting a mystery? You know, are you illustrating a mystery? Or are you simply using the word mystery as a way of covering up or glossing over a kind of, don't ask me to explain, uh, because right. you can't. So, and perhaps, perhaps here is where you're, you, know, you, you brought in C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle. Perhaps here is where, from an aesthetic viewpoint, you know, we can at least try to answer Aristotle and say, you know, in Lewis's case, he was providing an explanation of, well, first of all, we know what the rules were, and when we saw something that appeared to be changing the rules, he provided an explanation. He, At least as a storyteller, he showed us that he had thought this through enough sure. to recognize that, there's something going on here, as opposed to this, you know, the Harry Potter film, where the, the rules are just, in a sense, tossed out the window, and we don't know what they are. Yeah, that may be a little strong for me. I mean, I, I, I hear us being slightly harsher towards rallying than I feel. I, I, I want to make a spectrum of, of life. Uh, okay, I've thought it through from the beginning, and I'm very consistent to the rules on one end of the spectrum, and you know, the other end of the spectrum, I would put maybe not rallying, but like George Lucas. And so I say, I'm making this all up as I go along. I'm changing the rules willy-nilly and saying that I'm not. And I think That's in fair. rallying, it's, it's more in the middle, which is to say, uh, I've given this some thought and I've, I've given this some forethought and I'm not just changing things willy-nilly. Uh, but the thought that I've put into it is not as, as clear at, or not as tight as some other authors. I mean, not that C.S. Lewis is the most tight author in the world, but I'm more apt to give someone the benefit of the doubt thematically as to whether they're, whether they're presenting uh, a mystery. If they, if they demonstrate some kind of self-awareness of it, if I don't feel like I'm being misdirected of, hey, you know, look, a squirrel over there or something like that, so that right. you don't, don't actually look at that and, and raise the question. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair distinction. All right. Well, then, uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. This concludes this episode of The Thin Place. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield or onemorefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!